Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stopped making myths turn to issuing proclamations and commands. Your guides for this journey are me, Phil Cly, along with our trusty engineer, Jackie Regasio, and a lot of special guests. Unfortunately, Jake was not able to join us. May you continue to be a person. So this was initially planned as a Patreon episode, but we decided to release it to the world. The subject is mating, both literally in terms of what we think is important for two people coming together, and in reference to the classic 1991 novel by Norman Rush. Recently, there was a New York Times article entitled, Is True Love Possible? Readers are turning to this 1990s novel for answers. The article claimed that among a subset of mostly New Yorkers, the book was, quote, a calling card exchanged between romantic partners aspiring to the kind of courtship that occurs between Mr. Rush's two main characters. Now, I love the novel, but to me the idea that people would aspire to that kind of relationship was a bit horrifying, and I ended up having a conversation with the fantastic essayist B.D. McClay about it on Twitter. Um, I was delighted to see that she felt similarly. But the book had been recommended to me by another brilliant writer, Becca Rothfeld, who took the opposite position, and so it seemed like a perfect subject for a debate, or really just an extended conversation exploring our different reactions to a great book and what that might suggest about how we viewed modern romance. So representing the skeptical approach to the book's romance was myself and B.D. McClay, an essayist and critic who has written for publications like Lapham's Quarterly, The New Yorker, and The New York Times Magazine. Taking a more sympathetic view, we have Becca Rothfeld, the nonfiction book critic at the Washington Post and an editor at The Point, and John Baskin, a deputy editor at Harper's and a founding editor of The Point. Manifesto is also now sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fairfield's mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense yeah. of social responsibility. I also teach at Fairfield in both their undergraduate English department and in their Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program. We're very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for their sponsorship. And so, on to mating. Love is like a bottle of gin, but a bottle of gin is not like love. All right. So, thank you guys so much for coming uh, to debate this fantastic book, Mating. I got into this because of Becca. She loves this book, was very evangelical about it, and also she set it up as if this was the guide to healthy, egalitarian modern love in the 21st century. And when I read it, I love the book passionately, but I think I read it in almost exactly a kind of photo negative of how Becca had read it, which I found fascinating. And I was talking with you, um, uh, Barbara, about the book, and I think you had a similar response, right? Yeah, because there was that New York Times piece that was like, is true love possible? And then talking about mating as like the book people are reading to find out. Um, it's funny because mating is the book I used to, well, it's one of like, I had like a pack, like a four book pack 
of books that I would give friends like after a bad breakup <laughs> and like meeting was one of them because because I was like, oh, like like Janine sucks. So like it's going to be cathartic. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's no question that he sucks in the end. Like we all agree. <laughs> Maybe we should begin with a sort of overview of what the story is. Becca, would you would you be willing to kind of give a, a, a brief kind of account of what the book is yes. is about. Um, hold on. I think that my husband has misinterpreted my sign. I did not tell him that he could take my coffee. I thought you just asked if that was coffee. <laughs> this could be a scene from the book. You can let him know that that is not ideal egalitarian romantic love in the 21st century. Anyway, um, <laughs> so the book is about uh, anthropologists in Botswana uh, it's narrated by a young, I believe she's 31, which I remember because I am now 31 myself, uh, a 31-year-old anthropology graduate student at Stanford who's in Botswana doing field work, but her thesis has just failed and so she feels adrift. Um, and then she learns that this academic celebrity, Nelson Danoon, um, has this mysterious women's only commune in the depths of the uh, Kalahari Desert. Um, so she contrives, she kind of decides to fall in love with him. We should sort of like talk about that. She sees him at an event um, and then she decides that she's going to make the track to get into this commune that isn't taking new people. So she does and they have a romance that is good or bad depending on your perspective. Uh, and then although Nelson is vaguely irritating throughout but you know who isn't irritating sometimes um <laughs> then things begin to disintegrate um for, for reasons that we could get into but partially having to do with nelson's sort of paternalism at least that's like my reading and his his refusal to remove himself from this uh community that he's created and his sort of intrusiveness um but so he goes on this insane foolhardy journey into the desert um everything goes wrong and when he comes back he's just sort of changed into like this weird ethereal mystic kind of figure um who won't give the narrator any clear answers about what's happened to him so she leaves and then at the end of the book she's maybe going to go back and try to find him that's a, it's a i'm leaving out probably lots of like important things so i would say that it's a fairy tale about a woman who has at first three failed suitors, right? Who sort of correspond to the transcendentals, the true, the beautiful, and the good. The first one is is, is a photographer uh, who is interested in beauty and is um, ultimately shallow. Then there's the political guy, Martin, who is uh, sort of like one of the Susan Wolf's moral saints. He's impeccably moral and that just makes him utterly insufferable. Uh, <laughs> And there's a line uh, where she's talking about um, about him and how she just like, like doesn't want to spend her entire life apologizing for being an American. Uh, then she's with Z, who's like this spy, basically, uh, who I guess would correspond to the truth. But um, <laughs> he's... he's He's, uh, he's impotent or mostly impotent. Uh, he occasionally had erections, nothing full-blown, though, uh, is, is the line that I recall from that. And then she, she's pressing him for information that he shouldn't share. And he lets her know that there's somebody that he hates 
who's coming to town. And it turns out to be, you know, uh, the man she thinks will be her, her true love. She goes, sees him, is immediately, is immediately, immediately smitten. Um, and then she has to cross an impossible desert to get to his secret city where she must enter in disguise only to find out that the, um, uh, the true love is, is, is a total monster. Uh, there, there's one detail you both left out, though. Is Barbara gonna? <laughs> well, I don't know if John and I are thinking of the same thing, but there's a there's a very she is she is the appointed successor of Denise. Yes, we were thinking the same thing. Yes, um, and this stood out to me because, uh, in fact, this is how I met my current boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> by the ex-wife, not by Denise. Right, she meets. She meets the ex-wife at the at the event she goes to, and the ex-wife pushes her toward yeah. the moon. The ex-wife uh, is like drunk and unhinged. Uh, yeah. And... yeah, but but she she picks her, and then the narrator similarly picks her own successor later. And to me, this has a lot to do with how screwed up the relationships all of these women have with Danun is, which is that it's like a weird sexualized mothering thing mm -hmm. where they're like constantly sort of like trying to like fix his weight or like be like, is this about your childhood? Really? <laughs> like, is this really about your ideals? Or is it really about like, like I had a sort of basic question reading this, which is like, does the narrator actually like Danoon? Cause like Becca said, she sort of picks him. And then she goes through this enormous suffering to get him. But, like, she also doesn't pick him. His ex-wife picks her. And then she's just kind of, like, there. And so they have a relationship because she's, like, the only option. I, I don't know. There, it's it's an effort to recapture the detail about desire. of guilty repose because what I want is to plunge into Danoon and what followed. But the prelude is important, probably. I feel like someone after the deluge is being asked to describe the way it was before the flood while I'm still plucking seaweed out of my hair, Danoon being the deluge. Despite my metaphors, the last thing I want to do is fabulize Danoon and make him more than he was. I hate drama. I hate dramatizers. But it was distinctly like a building falling on me when I met him. Why? Why do we yield? when we don't have to. I'd like to know, as a woman and a human being, both. I think I'd also like to point out that, like, I don't think that her ministrations to Danoon or, like, attempts to reform, like, some of his behavior are, like, that unusual in heterosexual relationships. Like, I don't know that I've ever been in a relationship where I was like, this is completely untainted by, like, some measure of irritation. Like, I do wish this person would. And I think that Janoon is very, is totally irritating. And I tried to attend to that more on this reading of the book than I have in previous readings. And I did find him, like, more irritating this time. But in an extremely recognizable way. I mean, maybe it speaks poorly of me. But yeah. I think that most of the people I've been in romantic relationships with are irritating in some of the ways that he is, like, they kind of just have the typical male pathologies that like most female partners would try to reform. <laughs> I mean, this is the other question I had that was related to, does she like him? I was sort of interested in how much she relates to him as a man. Like she's always like, Danoon is like X because Danoon is a man or Danoon has this like male quirk. And I, I mean, if like, I've just never thought about people that way. Like, um, but I don't mind that because like this narrator is not me, but like, 
but it's something strange. Like it, it keeps on feeling like like there's a constant negotiation of like what role are we playing in this like drama. But then it's not entirely clear that one of them is even conscious of being in the drama or of, of any but of the Don't you think that's partly about the narrator's character and also like her being an anthropologist? Like she sort of does this with yeah. all her experience, doesn't she? Like like she puts everyone in oh, yeah. a kind of role and like and like analyzes them almost at like the species level. Uh, you know, in the way that it, that it, I feel, an you know, she she really says like I am an academic at heart. Like, there's a classificatory like urge she has. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's there's that bit. Uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't know what we are. Anthropology, notwithstanding, even though the reason I clutched anth- anthropology to my bosom was because I believed that academic disciplines did yeah. what they said they were doing rather than being hotbeds of dominance <laughs> behavior. Which, of course, is what they are. Um, dominance behavior. Yeah, yeah. And there's that that great bit where she's like, I think the chapter title is, uh, I took measurements not standardly taken, where she does this ridiculous scientific catalog almost of Danoon, like everything about him. And throughout, I mean, the reason that um, I describe the book in terms of the fairy tale is one, I just think it straightforwardly has that structure, but also she keeps getting these experiences that for another type of narrator would be obviously um, sort of beyond scientific calculation, right? Eros, love, like whatever that feeling is when she first falls for Danoon, um, but also when she's in the desert. Yeah. When she's at the waterfall, right? There's this incredible bit where she's at the waterfall and um, is looking at this incredible thing um, and has this intense kind of existential, uh, horrified physical and emotional and uh, almost like spiritual response. Uh, and she's like, like, I didn't know I was that sad. Right. And her answer to the feeling of just kind of like existential terror in the face of this thing of natural beauty is to realize, well, I need to mate. I need a companion. Yeah. Right. There, there's something I just wanted to say there's there's something I think we can maybe talk about it later, but that's interesting to think about the what the experience she has at the waterfall, which convinces her she needs a companion, versus the experience Danoon has in the desert when he feels this vaguely female presence. She describes the waterfall as male in the in the waterfall scene. When he's out in the desert, he describes this vaguely female presence, and it seems right. in some way, at least based on his behavior, when he gets back to detach him from any ability for companionship. It seems to have in some way uh, effect on him. Yeah, let me let me read very quickly from the waterfall section. You know you're in Africa at Victoria Falls because there is nothing any place to keep you from stepping off, stepping off into the cataract. Not a handrail, not an inch of barbed wire. There are certain small trees growing out over the drop where obvious handholds on the limbs have been worn smooth by people clutching them to lean out bodily over white death. I did this myself. I leaned outward and stared down and said out loud something like, weep for me, at which point I was overcome with enormous sadness from nowhere. I drew back into where it was safe, terrified. And then here's the sort of analytical part. I think the falls represented death for the taking, but a particular death, one that would be quick, but also make you part of something magnificent and eternal, an eternal mechanism. This was not in the same league as throwing yourself under some filthy bus. 
I had no idea I was that sad. Um, yeah. I think it's, uh, I was, I was actually going to say a similar thing to John, which is like, I think it's interesting to look at also her experience in the desert, right? Where she's like, um, basically mentally defending herself against turning this into some kind of mystical experience. Like, um, she has some line, like you can't let this become like significant. That's not what she says, but it's something like that. There is, there, there is Uh, less to the mysterious than meets the eye is what she tells herself going into it. Right. She's having like hallucinations and stuff. Uh, just like at the level of plot, it, it might still be sort of symbolically true that it's a rejection. Of- I, I, my sunglasses began to feel heavy and irritating. They were preventing something significant from happening. I developed the conviction that they were keeping me from seeing the real colors of the Kalahari and that this was hazardous for me. I would be in danger unless I recharged my sense of the real colors of things by taking my glasses off at some regular in- interval. I yielded to this notion, mainly in order to exhaust it, but each time I pushed my glasses up to the for- my forehead, I had the stronger sense of some suppressed vibration going on in the landscape, which I would be able to see clearly if I looked more intently and for a longer period the next time. This is brain chemistry, I said, and squatted down and hugged my head between my knees. Um, And I think it is interesting to me that she is, like, so relentlessly practical about this. Um, And it's, in fact, Danoon's openness to mysticism, that's what actually splits them up. Like, uh, he actually does seem to undergo a transformative experience in the desert, and it it seemed to me that the reason he won't tell her about it, it's funny. This is like the one part of the book where I actually do have sympathy with, with the yeah. like over her um, is because she's immediately going to like, be like, Oh, this is about your childhood or like you need to eat a sandwich. Um, and so like he, he can't, he's trying to like keep it safe um, from being brought down to earth. Uh, and that's like the final. Cause she, cause she loves them. to, didn't she say I take an inordinate pleasure in demystifying? That's like another part of her. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's another one of her academic impulses. I mean, I don't think that she is so rational. Like, I think that she is analytic, but like many times by her own admission, uh, is sort of trying to gain control of something that she feels is out of her control. I mean, it's, I think that she's often very rational about engaging in like patently irrational pursuits might be another way to put it because like she, I mean, she says often like trying to cross the Kalahari desert, like by yourself is like an absolutely insane thing to do. Then while she's doing it, she sort of tries to keep herself in check. Um, And you know, when she's in love with, when she's falling in love, like really dramatically in love with Janine, she kind of tries to be analytic about it. Like she sort of compiles a dossier about him because she wants to understand him. Uh, but she also like repeatedly says that she's like carried away by her emotions. Like there's that line about how it was like being hit by a bus when she meets him. Um, and there's, there's like lots of other like language like that. Um, yeah. That's why I loved it. Uh, one of the things I loved about the book is like, she's in this wild, passionate, um, dangerous, adventurous relationship. And at every juncture, she's sort of fighting against the narrative that she's actually inside of, right? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, to me, like the most vivid example of this is it's shortly after she's arrived in Sao and she's thinking about that teenage song that she hates. It's like, I will follow him. <laughs> I love him, I love him, I love him, and when he goes, I'll follow, I'll follow, 
And she's like, I would never do something like that. Right. Or like, I just always sworn I'd never be in a relationship where I'm like following a man. And it's like, like she's literally just like solo across the desert <laughs> following a man. But like she can't. Um, there's like a certain type of self-knowledge she like can't permit herself to have, which is that she is sort of like carrying out an adult version of that teenage romance. Yeah, that actually touches on a question I guess I had for Phil and Barbara in terms of your way of reading the book. Like when we talk about you read it as like a, a negative relationship or a cautionary tale in some way, what? how does that mean you see her? Like, do you see her as sort of deceived as to who Danoon is throughout the book? Do you see her? Because, I mean, there's one thing of like us as readers saying, well, we wouldn't like to be with this guy or we would. But then there's a separate question, sure. like within the economy of the book, like, do you see like, it would be hard for me to take the book seriously if I felt like she was purely just like deluded completely about who this guy is. No. And so I wonder like how you how you see her in relation to him. No, I don't think she's deluded. I mean, I think she like I said, I think she has like a lack of she has like both a lot of surface self-knowledge and then like a not like a lot of deep self-knowledge is maybe how I think of her. Um, but to me, like what makes the relationship dysfunctional isn't either of them in a vacuum um it's that she is so much more devoted to Danoon than he is to her like and to me that's sort of like what's so important about each woman picking their replacement though I think uh her chosen replacement doesn't work out though it's also ambiguous as to whether she didn't work out for Danoon or she didn't work out for the community because of the way the, the note is worded. But um, that like, there's a kind of emotional asymmetry in the relationship that seems really dark to me. Yeah. That's like what, what makes the book to me like um, a, a story of a, a doomed relationship rather than, uh, and like a sort of, to use the word, a word that I find kind of annoying, like a, a hetero pessimist book, because it, because the narrator sees things so strongly as kind of like women are like this, men are like that. It seems like there's this kind of suggestion that women are always going to be like, you know, sort of staking it all on love, um, crossing the desert, you know, being willing to sign up for these insane experiments in living. Um, and to the men, they're just kind of disposable pieces like they might be treasured but the way that you like have a favorite hammer yeah i mean i don't so you said like a while ago that she's fighting the narrative that she's inside of and i guess that's just not the way that i read it at all i guess i now have a maybe expanded vocabulary for thinking about it because i recently read the stanley cavell book pursuits of happiness in which he's interpreting like a series of like golden era films basically as like the attempts of people within heterosexual relationships to renegotiate what heterosexuality might mean in the wake of like women's emancipation, um, broadly speaking. And I guess I see mating as like an entry in that genre, where even if I don't think that she's ultimately successful at rewriting the script of heterosexuality, I think that the reason why she's resistant to accepting the narrative that she's inside of is because like that's the way to change that is that is the traditional narrative of heterosexuality. And she's committed to trying to like right. renovate or change that. She doesn't want to have to give up on love to end up in like an equal liaison. 
Look, Hildy, I only acted like any husband who didn't want to see his home broken up. What home? What home? Don't you remember the home I promised you? Sure I do. That was the one we were to have right after the honeymoon. <laughs> that honeymoon. Oh, was it my fault? Did I know that coal mine was going to have another cave in? Um, and I, I, I think the book addresses that problem directly in a way that none of the other sort of allegories of equal love, I think of them, uh, do. And she says like, explicitly, like, what I want is equal love. And so that's why she has, I think, yeah. all of these narratives or fairy tales of heterosexuality that she repeatedly rejects. And there's like a ton of them. There's, mm -hmm. all these, there's, the, there's the one about the song, but there's also stuff at the end where um, you know, she has all these horror stories about her friends who engage with people badly. And there's like a scene from a movie where a heroine like runs out and gives the man like a, a clean shirt. And she's like, I never want to be like that. Um, so I think that like it's it's not that she's like so analytic that she can't accept love or emotion or mysticism. I mean, maybe that's part of it. But I think the other part is that she has like a principled objection uh, to the narrative yeah. that she's thrust in and she wants to be in love with somebody and she is heterosexual. But the only way to do that in a way that she feels like is responsive to sort of her dignity as a person involves like the revision of the narrative. Should we read the passage from 173 where she actually lays out like what the ordinary version of mating is that's not good enough for her? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can Go read it. it. So she, she, this is soon after she's gotten to Sao and the relationship is starting with Deneen and she wakes up from a dream and, and she has this thought, there was something I should beware, something that was not good enough. What was not good enough was the usual form that mating takes. I had to realize that the male idea of successful love is to get a woman into a state of secure dependency, which the male can renew by a touch or pat or gesture now and then, while he reserves his major attention for his work in the world or the contemplation of the various forms of surrogate combat men find so transfixing. I had to realize that female style love is servile and petitionary and moves in the direction of greater and greater displays of servility, whose object is to elicit from the male partner a surplus, the word was emphasized in some way, face-to-face -face attention. So on the distaff side, the object is to reduce the quantity of servile display needed to keep the pacified state between the mates and being. Equilibrium of a perfect mating will come when the male is convinced he is giving less than he feels is really required to maintain dependency, and the woman feels she is getting more from him than her servile displays should merit. I, in the dream, this seemed to me like a burning insight, and I concentrated fiercely to hold on to it when I woke up. I should remember this inescapable diet at the heart of mating because it was not what I had come this far to get. Yeah, she also has a passage. There's also passages where she says that what she's looking for is something she calls intellectual love. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's another passage, which I have like found um, where she says explicitly that what she wants is what she calls equal love. So I'll just read that passage. Sorry for the passage dump listeners. <laughs> My utopia is equal love, equal love between people of equal value, although value is an approximation for the word I want. Why is it so difficult? A sort of mating shows that there has to be some drive in nature to bring equals together in the toils of love. So why even in the most enlightened and beautifully launched unions are we afraid to hear the master-slave relationship moving its slow thighs somewhere in the vicinity? It has to be cultural. In fact, the closest thing to a religion I have is that this has to be cultural. Um, I mean, I, I love and I'm so moved by this passage because her vision of love is so close to mine. And like there are other works of art in which I think a similar vision is being explored. Like His Girl Friday is an example. Um, but this book like explicitly theorizes this problem uh, in a way that I find really moving. Yeah. And and, and that's one reason to re like the fairy tale structure is is interesting because in fairy tales, women are an object. Right, like, you know, the fairy queen—not uh, the fairy queen, the um, 
in the Firebird. It's like you go out, you get a Firebird, you get a horse, and you get like a pretty girl. And those are like the three objects that you come back at the end of the, the sort of successful thing. And this is, you know, she's, there's a, there's a bit where early on she mentions this when she meets to noon, she's like, I like this feeling of being the only woman in a room full of men doing everything they can to ignore me. Right. And so she's coming from a context where she's incredibly smart. She's really smart. Right. And one of the nice things about that opening sequence with Danoon when you first meet him is he's kind of like holding court. Right. And and he's being like, <laughs> I mean, like this was when I started disliking him as soon as we met him, you know, Um First, I always say I am not the enemy of any system per se. I collect systems. I am agnostic about systems, but I love them. You know, he's like such a douchebag. But she's looking at him and she's analyzing how he's performing in front of the room. And not just the things that he's saying, like the arguments, but the way that he is either manipulating or failing to manipulate the crowd. And uh, and she's being really, really sharp and thoughtful and not, she's not swooning, right? She's analyzing him and analyzing his performance and ultimately being really impressed by it. But also critical, like she's always- But also critical, yeah. Uh, and so, and then ultimately with him, she has someone who, she has genuine intellectual exchange. And there's a bunch of, of times early on where she notes like, areas where she successfully pushed back on him, right? Or things that she's gotten him, like intellectual pretensions that she's gotten him to give up on, right? Like when he's when he hasn't read a book, uh, but doesn't want to admit it, he'll he'll be like, oh, I know that book. Middle, Mar middle March, it takes him three different conversations to finally admit he's never read a word of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also think that the Middle March thing is very significant because I think you can like... To a certain extent, you can sort of cast her as Dorothea and him as Kazaban. Um, mm -hmm. And like, it's a sort of like second. The key to all mythology. Relationship. But I don't think, Becca, have you I am going to admit, unlike Danoon, that no, I have not. <laughs> yeah, I know that book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I don't want to. But I, I do want to go back to the equal love passage because I, I agree with Becca that that passage is tremendously moving. Um, and I also want to say, like, my, my read on the narrator is not that she's hyper-rational, but that she's mm. very practical, which, like, um, that's why she's, like, always sort of comparing herself to mm. her mother, right? Like, her mother is this kind of, like, impractical, like, giant, like, physically giant, sort of, like, unstable person. But, like, she's grounded. She's, um, but, like, I guess to me, what is either the comedy or, like, well, I think mating yeah. is a funny book, so I'll say the comedy of mating is that that she is the woman running after the guy with the shirt, and she is um, ultimately like in this relationship that that isn't this very moving, very beautiful like ideal. Uh, like, like ultimately, she is kind of like there in a state of dependency taking care of Danoon while he like gets drunk and talks about like how Francis Bacon or whoever really wrote Shakespeare's plays. Like, <laughs> uh, and so like, uh, and I mean like the, the scene where he like reveals this cache of hidden wine for his male guest 
because he really wants to like, well, partly to be like reciprocate generosity, right? But like, they also just really want to argue about like who really wrote Shakespeare's plays. Um, and we get more of that argument, like more details and nuances of that argument than we get of any of her clashes like with Danoon. Like I, I sort of, like that really stood out to me that um, I can't recall like a a single like long discussion like that that takes place between her and Danoon that is simply about an idea and not about their relationship. They do talk a lot about each other's childhood and they talk a lot about like the details of the political yeah. system that he's setting up at Sao. Um, I mean, one thing just to, to go back to like those, those two passages that Becca and I read that I think for me, like reading this and thinking about the relationship and what I admire about it is it's not so much that I think it's like a perfect model relationship. There's something, one of the things that I admire about it and that I think makes it so unusual in like art contemporary literature is that it feels very adult in a certain sense. And what I mean by that is like, they both have ideals that they know they're not living up to. I mean, she's practical in some senses, but she knows she's a total idealist in a certain sense about love. Like she says, this is like my great like mission in life is to have this equal love. But she knows that equal love is hard for all kinds of reasons. And there's a certain kind of anthropological realism, even like even in the statement she makes about men and women. And I suppose part of what you part of how you read the relationship will be to what ex will be affected by to what extent you think she's right that men and women heterosexual men and women have differences that need to be negotiated in a relationship like this and that some of the things Danoon does like this like this scene you just described are in some way like an inveterate male behavior that like one will have to deal with to some degree and you know if you want to be in that kind of relationship and you might think oh it'd be better to be with a guy who didn't have this impulse but there's something quite realistic to me about the way that the book sort of takes tries to take men and women in a way that like these are traits that like we have and like we have to figure out we can we can reach towards something better but we also can acknowledge like adults that like it's not we're not always going to be there you know and that this will be like a continuous negotiation and i think that's the thing where at the end he sort of detaches and the negotiation stops like, but throughout their relationship, I guess what I admired about it was this feel that like, there is this recalcitrant material in both of us, you know, and we're trying to like work through it together, um, but it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, I see like the, I see this book as like an exercise in utopianism and like the most obvious way in which it's an exercise in utopianism is that like he has designed uh, or has attempted to design like a, a sort of like model political community, like a perfectly egalitarian, like matriarchal political community, which ends up falling apart. But I see that as sort of like an allegory for like what they're trying to do in their relationship. Like they're trying to do what political philosophers would call ideal theory, like setting ideals for themselves, setting regulative ideals for themselves that like they then are both trying and like often failing, but at least like trying to live up to. Um, and I, I do think she finds herself in this state of like asymmetrical and abject dependence. But I also think that dependence is this sort of necessary concomitant of love. Like I always think of the Julian Rose line, like there's no democracy in love, in love relations, only mercy, I think is the line uh, loves work. 
which is like a great book. Um, and so I think that the injustice is not that she's dependent, but that he sort of like withdraws right. like reciprocal dependence. And it's true that I think that he never is quite as committed to the relationship as she is, uh, because he never sort of allows himself to be quite as dependent on her as she's trying to allow herself to be on him. But I think at least earlier, they are like colluding in this project of kind of like rewriting the script of heterosexuality together. Um, and I think that John is right that like what annoys me in the end is like his abdication of their collaboration. I thought the end was perfect and, and also delightful. Like he becomes totally ridiculous at the end. Um, and there's a way I think there's, so they both have a kind of sciencey mindset, right? But I think it's importantly different and maybe it may be sort of maybe gendered, right? Uh, as well, she is. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's a, a Polish poet whose name I will butcher, um, uh, Tadeusz Dobrowski. Um, uh, sorry, I, I just met him, and he's a really wonderful poet. And I just screwed it up. I'm sure. Um, who was talking about like the metaphysical is anything that exceeds me, right? And her sort of ground levels, anything that exceeds me, I either reject or categorize. And that's a very weird place to be in when you're talking about romantic love. Um, but there's a variety of kinds of like um, things that overwhelm, overwhelm one. There's love, there's religious sentiment, there's also politics, right? All of which come in in these novel. And, and, and all of them are present but consistently denied. And whereas she has this sort of removed approach to noon's to my, to my mind is one where he's using that that viewpoint as a kind of sort of dominating tool right he's the white guy establishing this commune and he knows all the things that he's supposed to say but even from the very beginning when we meet him in Bake, who's one of his critics say tells him you say comrade yet you take us as small boys right and um Dunoon has set up this, this, uh, this coming that's supposed supposedly like well the women are running it right, but it's all set up according to his preoccupations and there's even a moment where um, she's trying to explain to him like the reason people follow you is not necessarily because they're invested in your complicated arguments but rather there's something about you right that 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 um, that makes people want to follow you. You're, he's a charismatic leader, right? And that's related to the thing that actually appeals to her, which is his performance, right? Not necessarily his arguments, um, but his performance uh, in front of the crowd when she first meets him. And he thinks of reason and rationality and even art as just like tools of propagating his ideas. There's a wonderful bit where he's, he listens to this woman's story, which is really moving. Um, uh, to him. And th there's this sort of thing that, that they do, a uh, sort of religious ritual basically called the Lamentations, where the women talk about like the horrors uh, that have happened in the past to them. And this one woman tells a story and it moves him. Uh, but not because he's interested in her. There'd been an overflow of Mir uh, at Miriam's because the subject matter of her story was an example of what he had been trying to get into his poem. 
He explained it to me. He wanted to write a poem that would make the point that anyone who embraces violence should be seen as an ally of all the inescapable natural enemies of humanity, from earthquake to the panoply of diseases. It was so clear to him. He obviously thought that if he, he could get this into a halfway decent poem, it might have some effect, right? You're not a poet, I had to, saw, to, to tell him. This is not a poem. A genius could do it, he said. We laughed over it. Your problem is that you want to be everything, I told him. That isn't the worst, he said. And she ultimately says, you must be the greatest believer in the power, to, power of poetry there is. And just that, and then later he talks about the idea of writing an essay where anybody who reads it is just going to be um, utterly overwhelmed uh, by the power of his argument. And, uh, and ultimately what happens in this commune is that the people revolt, right? And... Um, and they specifically accuse him of pushing, pushing ideology on them, right? And of course, all of his ideas about religion and everything are baked into, into the educational system uh, of this commune that is supposedly not really run by him. Why are you speaking so long with saying we must not have beliefs whilst you are thrusting beliefs upon these people from long before when we first came here, she asked. Always you are giving forth beliefs that you are Lako, and, and we say, why is he not giving forth beliefs to Mako rather than Botswana? Right. And um, and ultimately, neither him nor her, because when he leaves, she's very straightforward, like there's no one interesting here. She's only interested in, in him. Right. The other sort of um, uh, <laughs> African people who theoretically are the object of this whole enterprise, this utopian enterprise, they're ultimately um, just kind of emanations of his own ideas he's not interested in this human beings and when they result against his you know his ideas right which he wants to be so powerful that when put into a poem or an essay they just overwhelm everybody's you know natural human instincts um uh, that's the sort of leads to the breaking point uh where he you know flees into the the Dao De Ching and, and and Lao Tzu and becomes the emperor of ice cream as she describes it um and so there's a way in which his approach is ultimately about domination, right? Um, and that's incompatible with the sort of love that she's interested in. It's incompatible with political, you know, utopianism. It's 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 incompatible with being a, being a decent human being. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, he ultimately has a lot of fear of, like, actually allowing the democratic process to work out on the ground. And what struck me a lot, like, reading it this time again is how many exceptions from the sort of rule of law that applies to everyone else he allows himself. So, like, he's adamantly opposed to, like, anyone, uh, any of the citizens of uh, the commune getting guns to hunt even when there's like a threat of lions, which maybe is trumped up, but he's really adamantly opposed to that. But then it turns out that he's like hoarding a gun in secret. And there's like, there's various things like that. Or like people are supposed to like- Okay, that bit is funny because they ultimately get the guns to deal with these monkeys. And she decides that the way to go about it is you just have to shoot the male monkeys who are easy to spot because of their iridescent testes. Yes. <laughs> which- <laughs> It's just... I mean, the whole book is really funny. Uh, yeah. But he does this multiple times. So, I mean, I, I think that, like, when she leaves, it's less because I don't read it as, like, that she's uninterested in the African people in the commune because there are, like, several characters that she, like, says that she respects and likes a lot. I think it's more that she is actually sensitive, like, to their autonomy in a way that yeah. 
Nelson uh, is not. Like, he, she's also very socially intelligent. I mean, I think that this is one of the sort of typical male pathologies that he exhibits, is that he is just completely socially unintelligent, like completely mm-hmm. blind and deaf to like flagrant social cues. Um, and so the people are sort of repeatedly emphasizing that they really want him to step down from his leadership position and like possibly like they want him to leave. Um, and so there's, yeah. there's, there's this one scene where they engage in basically like public hectoring of him at this public event um, and he refuses to acknowledge it as such. She's like, they're telling you that they want you to leave. And he's like, no. So I, I mean, I sort of see her departure partially as a response to his transformation, partially just a function of her despair that he's transformed into this like totally inaccessible person. But partially, I think that like she's demonstrating that she has the emotional sophistication to respond to the autonomy of the people in this commune in a way that he doesn't. Um. I also don't agree with like this sort of claim that's been made several times that like we don't see him caring about intellectual stuff or we don't see them like engaging in intellectual disputation. Like I do think that he is super annoying frequently and like generally and often it subsumes uh, intellectual interest to like a desire to propagandize. But I think that we also do see he loves William Blake, for example. So we see him like reading William Blake uh, a bunch of times. And like he repeatedly makes remarks to the effect that like the perfect society or the good life is 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 arranged such that you have maximal time for engaging in like leisure reading. Um, and she also, also yeah. I mean, his political ideas, I don't think you're supposed to think are totally stupid. I mean, they become tyrannical in a way. He's a true progressive in a deep sense. Yeah, like respond to his own principles. Like part of the problem is that like he's really committed to like the rule of law, but then like he exempts himself. Like when the democratic process results in the people choosing something that he wouldn't choose for them, like they're religious. Like people want to have religious institutions, and he's like this like militant atheist, and he like won't let them. Right. I mean, but this is the problem with a lot of progressivism, right? Like there's an anti-democratic aspect to it. It's like you care about these people up until they express beliefs that go against what you've decided progress. Is and, and I mean, it is important, like among other things, besides a novel about love and political utopias, this is also a development novel, a, a novel about yeah. international development, the Holocaust called development, which she calls it at the end. And, you know, it's, that's another realm where I feel like what I, uh, I guess what I admire about the book or what I feel is adult about it is the way that it holds intention the sense that like the, there are people here who really want to help and do good and have interesting ideas. And, you know, when he gives the speech about socialism and capitalism at the beginning, I, you know, I don't think it's totally stupid. Like, I think you're supposed to no. see like, there's something here, like that's like, he's on to certain things that are important. Um, at the same time, like when you watch him put it in practice, it sort of gradually reveals itself to you as this like, narcissistic tyrannic in its sort of narcissistic and tyrannical aspect um and that's just another place where i feel like the book you 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 sort of have to work through the tensions between these things um it doesn't mean there's not like a good impulse there but you also see like how hard it is to actually enact in a in, in in the way he wants to there's a a line of the narrators that i'll read that i think is like an interesting kind of micro version of this sort of tension um, and it's, I think it's shortly after she's arrived in Sao and she is thinking about the food. Um, and so she's like, she's talking about vegetarianism. So she's like, I'm not even against vegetarianism. At some level, I think vegetarianism is right. 
it's certainly sound so long as you watch your lysine and your b12 um, but i'm not a vegetarian something makes me resist why am i certain that males constitute a distinct minority of the total vegetarians i think i'm not prepared to concede <laughs> animal protein to the striding around master sex while i know <laughs> leafage i've certainly seen who gets the meat in african families uh I, this passage is very interesting to me, like on a couple of levels, partly that that last line, because I think there's mating is sort of interesting to me because it's like constantly raising the thing that these are like white people sort yeah. of wandering around Africa. Like she tells you right up front at the beginning, right? I don't date black African men, but not for racist reasons, for, for other reasons than like. Uh, and so like sort of like Africa is like both. It's like many things, but it's sort of like her her template for patriarchy in a kind of interesting way. But um, but I also think there's something interesting here where she's like, and I think maybe this sort of parallels Danoon and Sao in some ways, where it's like there's this ideal which I believe in, in her case vegetarianism, but like I won't do it, <laughs> and I won't do it because like it means seeding something that I'm not willing, like I'm not willing to, to drop a level in pursuit or in adherence to this ideal. Um, and so like with the noon, I think it's more like, like I'm not going to give up the secret gun I have in my house or I'm not going to like step back. I'm not going to like abide by the process I set up. Or really engage with the culture. Right. You know, I, I think about, um, Oh, um, it was Pentecost recently, right? Um, which is when uh, the apostles start speaking and everyone hears it in their own native dialect, right? And there's um, <laughs> there's sort of different styles of missionary activities, sort of, you know, um, uh, dead prez, white man came to Africa with rifles and Bibles. The white man came to Africa with rifles and Bibles. Heard the name start changing the titles. Now instead of Shaka, call me Nat Turner with the burner. Um, there's also sort of like uh, a very sort of syncretic missionary tradition where you're uh, very open to uh, local religious ritual custom. Uh, the sort of famous Sosa hymn, which is a merger of Christian and uh, this religion. Um, uh kind of blended together. And I thought it was interesting that when we first meet Danoon, it's noted that he he disagrees with Julius Nairire, right? Um, uh, uh, who's Tanzania's first president, has this sort of uh, vision of uh, more kind of progressive... Uh, economic policy, but is also sort of deeply influenced by Catholicism, right? And the white characters in this are white characters moving through an Africa where anyone who is not a white character is ultimately a bit player, including the most important sort of political thinker in the region, right? And, uh, and I, I don't say that as a criticism of the book. I think the book is conscious of that. And makes it very, very clear from the outset that, that that's what's happening. And so when there's ultimately that kind of revolution against Danoon at the end, 
it's anyway in my reading of the book or at least my feeling was not like oh no his beautiful experiment is going to be destroyed it's like thank like finally you know um uh the vice grip has been broken um and that's also i think the moment when the the love starts to shatter yeah it's interesting. I feel like the Nectar and Rush's second novel, Mortals, kind of like pushes all of this to a sort of extreme degree that I find kind of interesting. Like, like the, the guy is a CIA agent. <laughs> He's not just a, a white guy wandering around Africa. And then the, the relationship in Mortals feels like like the most maximally dystopian version of the the relationship and mating where like there is only this kind of like claustrophobic um dyad uh but it's flipped he's like totally obsessed with her and she is like distant from him anyway but i think morals to me is like an interesting book because i feel like it like dials up all these things in mating to a kind of extreme level um which makes it less fun to read Mortals is the one you should give to your broken up friends, I think. Although in Mortals, they tell you the narrator is unnamed in this book and she like recurs in Mortals and you learn her name, which is Karen Ann Hoyt, which is kind of deflating. And then like you also find out that she has <laughs> ultimately married Danoon and the power dynamic is totally reversed because he's been like disfigured and debilitated in a fire, I think. And so she's like, <laughs> around his wheelchair and she's like a celebrity, which is satisfying, <laughs> frankly. Um, although I kind of think that you should like isolate mating from that when you like try to think through it because I like the Jamesian ambiguity of the ending in which it's like unclear, like whether their relationship can be salvaged. Um, but I was going to say, Phil, that like, I agree with you that it's really satisfying when Tanoon is uh, unthroned, I guess. But I, I mm -hmm. don't think that that's because the ideals of Tao are not good or utopian if they were actually enacted. I think it's because of this thing that we've been talking about, which is that like he consistently betrays his own principles, like repeatedly forcing all kinds of irritating things on like not only making exceptions for himself, but ignoring people's stated desires so like one he tries yeah. to make them adopt like the lazy susan in their in their houses so that like food could be more he made us eat from a wheel yeah like he tried to do all this like he tried to make us eat off a wheel um but, like i similarly think that i guess what is disappointing about him and ultimately in his relationship with the narrator is that he seems like he has endorsed the same principles as her and yet he fails to abide by those principles in all kinds of small ways like repeatedly throughout the book like she's doing more domestic labor than he is even though he's like supposedly committed to like having an equal share like she ends up cleaning his clothes so that his clothes are clean and then like neglecting her own clothes and like in all kinds of other ways i think that what's moving and exhilarating initially is that it seems like he has these good principles but then the book is about the drama of his like failure to live up to the principles well ultimately does. right like in that passage i read about how the man ends up like wanting to just do enough to keep the relationship going while he engages in like his political work or i mean that's what happens you know in the course of their relationship like it's it's very arguable whether she says like i didn't come this far to get that and i think it's arguable whether she actually that is what she right. ends up with um, but there's also, there are other things like, I mean, one, one bit that I liked, um, causing active ongoing pleasure in your mate is something people tend to restrict to the sexual realm or getting attractive food on the table on time. 
but keeping permanent intimate comedy going is more important than any other yeah, one. Thing. I love that. I love that yeah. so much. <laughs> and, and that I think you do see in their relationship. You do see. You yes. see the jokes they have, and and the book yeah. does a good job of showing that kind of intimate humor better than. And, and that's one area where their their intellects are match up, right? In in a where yeah. where they're in a spirit of play, which it seems really really important, um, and and there's a kind of in, genuine interchange that is intellectual, but also you know comic, which is something else. Yeah, I love that, like, Norman Rush is just so, like, another way in which the novel is adult is, like, it's not talking down to its readers at all or, like, apologizing for its, like, unabashed intellectualism at all. And so another thing that I love about their relationship is just almost nowhere else in literature or in art have I seen someone as relentlessly intellectual as I am. Not That's not a compliment. It's just, like, I, I want to argue all the time, too. Like, I want a partner who wants to argue with me all the time about, like, Italian fascism or whatever. And so, like, this book... Uh, I think does a good job of showing that. And one reason why I don't think their relationship is a failure, despite the way that it ends, is that at its height, I do think that you get lots of bits and pieces of uh, what he calls their idiolect, um, or their idioverse, like the, the idiolect that they have in their idioverse, I guess. Uh, right. All the witty things that they say to each other and the evident pleasure that they take in engaging with each other's minds uh there's like one part where he says archer where the narrator says she's like going through the entertainments in the village and she's like people played these games and blah 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 and she's like an archer entertainment was arguing uh which to me is like the ideal relationship and so i think that there is a brief period of time where you see in a very detailed way what the sort of like language of like a egalitarian like highly intellectual love is like and i do think that it's like brief and then he ultimately betrays it but nonetheless that is like a it presents an ideal that i think i have not found elsewhere i want to read the so go oh, ahead no, i was just going to say a movie i i thought of in comparison to meeting which i had not thought of is um annie hall where i feel like that relationship is similarly um like when it starts, you can see how it's going to end. But like, there are still these like very beautiful moments. Um, but they are mostly moments of comedy. Like I'm thinking of the moment with yeah. the lobsters and and so on, um, where you think, oh, I wish that this could work. Yeah. But like, you also know that when she when she leaves him at the end, like it, it's sort of like an. It's because she will like, be sort of destroyed, by him if she stays. Anyway. I mean, I, I think the screwball comedies that Becca brought up are also good points of comparison. Um, but because Annie Hall is so explicitly like talking about like happiness in a relationship and if it's possible. Um, anyway, I thought of it at some point. Yeah, if any of those other examples of like stories of equal love, like I would be interested to hear them because I'm like always interested. I think like Jane Austen is maybe in this category, like. Pride and Prejudice and Emma and then Fair Play by Tova Janssen is like another entry in the genre but I'm always like looking for things in this genre because equal love is important to me <laughs> yeah the I, I want to just read her sort of gloss on intellectual love real quickly um, intellectual love is a particular hazard for educated women I think Certain conditions have to obtain. You meet someone, I would specify, of the opposite sex, but this is obviously me being hyper-parochial, who strikes you as having persuasive and well-founded answers to questions on the order of, where's the world going? 
These are distinctly not meaning-of-life questions. One thing Danoon did convince me of is that all quest answers so far to the question, what is the meaning of life, dissolve into ascertaining what some hypostatized superior entity wants you to be doing. Id est ascertaining how and to whom or what you should be in an obedience relationship. The proof of this is that no one would ever say, if he or she had been convinced that life was totally random and accidental in origin and evolution, that he or she had found the meaning of life. So fundamentally, intellectual love is for a secular mind. Because if you discover that someone, however smart, is, he has neglected to mention, a Thomist or in Baha'i, you think of him as a slave to something uninteresting. Yeah, I don't agree with that part. <laughs> but. I mean, I was struck reading it this time by how strong the anti-religion strand is in this book, in both of them, but especially in Danude. And I feel that it's like one of the, sig- well, it, it's, it's actually not clear to me like what Rush thinks of this. Um, because in, in some, in some regard, I feel like Rush agrees that like, with that point that like, there's something uninteresting sort of, uh, uh, you know, would say that they're, that they take their orders from a religion or whatever. But at the same time, I also feel like Danoon is revealed as someone ultimately who like his denial of religion is somehow, there's a sort of psychoanalysis of it. It goes back to his mother. It recurs in his own experience in the desert and he's sort of not able to grapple with it in an adult way. And so in some sense, his own, uh, I mean, she has this line about, uh, about how, you know, uh, she couldn't have married a Catholic unless he was presented to me in the costume of someone else, a rational person. And I, I thought to myself, well, isn't that what happened to her with Danoon? He's a costume of a rational person. And yet, there's something in him and maybe it's his political commitments. Maybe it's like whatever, something that shows through in the end. It's not. Well, there's, there's from the beginning, like she talks about his bottle cathedral, right? And the bottlements, I think is what they, yeah, right. Right. (laughs) But it's like, and, and his mother had insisted that the cathedral was the highest achievement of man. Right. And that there's something in this that, and then the father destroys it. Right. Yeah, and there's something uh, about the inability to see any value yeah, in that or, or sort of, and then his refusal to but, let the people build the religious. Yeah. But at the same time, she says, well, you know, she, she's talking about Marxism and she's like, I feel towards Marxism the way that, that I do towards like Greek orthodoxy, right? Where. Wouldn't it be nice if you could believe it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it wouldn't it be nice if you could believe it when New Year's Eve comes and they get to this fantasy maths with basso priest droning, candles flaring, gold leaf all over, if only you could believe it, right? So I'm actually, I'm going to stick up for the, the anti-religious aspect of this, actually, because I think, um, and it, it links with the Marxism, uh, which is that I think that part of what she is reacting to is... Uh, like, I think a, a word that has come up a couple times, uh, notably, like, when Becca was talking about um, this and the Stanley Cavell stuff is, like, negotiation, yeah. right? Um, but, like, a, a religious precept or experience is, like, not an aspect of, of negotiation. Like, you, you cannot... That's what happens when he goes into the desert. Um, and so I think it's partly, like, the, the possibility of a rule being invoked about behavior um, that can't be like negotiated through that you might simply say like, I won't do this or I have to do this. And that's not like a discussion. It's like a moral imperative. Um, 
And that, I think, is it's not actually the the mystical thing. That's why Marxism is also a religion here. It's the idea of something not being... I don't want to say debatable, because obviously, like, there are debates within religions, but, like, being a, a different set of, of consideration or yeah. something. I mean, I think that he opposes, though, not just that, but, like, sort of denies the legitimacy of, like, transporting experiences. I mean, I think that he's inconsistent on this, because he has... Trans- he reports that he's had transporting experiences, mostly, like, when... He- when he's reading, like he's had transporting experiences reading Blake. And there's one really great part about how when he's like a, a child, he it, he has an exp- one of many ex- perfect experiences that he assumes would be repeated later in life and isn't or something like that, where he like reads straight through like a bunch of like mystery novels. Um, yeah. But I, I think that you're right that that's part of it. And that part I'm sympathetic to. But then the other part where it seems like he wants to deny uh, transport. Well, I also think that's why she doesn't like it. She doesn't want that somebody to just sort of right. like whip out a rule book or like this transcendent transcendent set of principles and be like, you know, I can't eat meat on it. Like eat, eating meat on Fridays is like a very trivial example. But like, you know, if, if Danoon actually were a Catholic, there would be a lot of rules around sex, for instance, that would like just be a part of their life. I mean, she- He's much more consistent on the matter than he is because he obviously has a religious impulse. Like, like, and it's manifest in the political community he's making. And that, and he's superstitious. He like believes in psychics and stuff. And she's like, "What? Like, you don't believe in this stuff?" Like, I think that he is in some ways more religious than she is, but also like less respectful of these kind of like sublime experiences because she has several really beautiful passages. Like, she has one where she talks about the sex that they're having, and she calls it blank sex, um, which is like a, a really beautiful like passage about like the transports of eroticism. I don't remember if that's at the same point or another point, but she also writes about this experience she had as a child where she would engage in what she calls, I think, chain diving, where she would jump off the diving board and then run back as quickly as possible and jump off the diving board at the pool again, sort of in an attempt to just be continuously in this state that she knows is fleeting, which is the state of being in midair. And like, I think that like ultimately all of her behavior demonstrates that above all, she is like sort of committed to the pursuit and preservation of this kind of fleeting ecstasy, which is something I admire about her. And that I think is in some way religious about her temperament that Janoon, for all of his like irrationality and dogmatism, in those ways he's religious, but in this way he's not religious. Yeah, I mean, I think Janoon is both. Yeah, he's both more religious in a certain sense, but he's also both more. He's also more hostile on the surface to religion, and obviously there's a sort of psychoanalytic way you can read his own hostility to it, to these impulses in himself. I, I think. I mean, would it be fair um, to say that they're both people who lack? a certain type of self-knowledge and like that's why they have these kind of contradictory i mean i don't think that makes them unusual like i don't have a lot of self-knowledge either but i think it's like part of what's interesting about the book because she is like so observant um of him and of herself that at the same time there's like kind of a mystery well, they both have a kind of aspiration to a complete knowledge of themselves and everything. You know, that thing where she said, I wanted to describe everything, to know everything. And it feels like he has a similar, he has a theory about everything. And that's part of how, what, what like makes them a good couple. But it, yeah, it can't help but lead to a certain kind of self-blindness. Like it's an aspiration. It's another utopian aspiration in a sense, I think, that, that they, they struggle to negotiate. 
Yeah. Anthropology, even my rather mundane corner of it, seemed to me to connect with the mystery of everything, by which I think I meant why the world has to be so unpleasant. Uh, you know, I, my orientation, I mean, it's, it's funny because on, uh, on the one level I like to be very analytical and such, but I think my orientation is that the, the way one should approach the the world that we find ourselves in is foremost with sort of awe and wonder and attunement to mystery that you, um, and that, uh, a kind of, you know, hyped up desire to deflate everything or to explain away everything is just a sort of, um, naive faux sophistication. And, and I think that that orientation led to the way that I sort of read the book and, 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 and took the book because it was sort of two people who were very resi resistant to kind of what I find at the heart of your, how you should approach the world and everything within it, including romantic relationships. Um, and so, you know, that I think determined my response to them, even though you can sort of take a step back and say, if you consider the context she's operating in and what she wants and what she's pushing back against, right? Um, you could understand why in a lot of ways, like there are plenty of moments with Danoon, especially when there's that like comedy going on where she has something genuinely beautiful and what she wants and which is far rarer than it should be. Yeah. I mean, I think that one thing that I like about Rush because I am such a, uh, I don't know, irrational evangelist, like one of my deepest and most like religious beliefs is just that there like isn't a contradiction between intellectualism and aestheticism mm -hmm. that uh, she takes a kind of aesthetic appreciation in their intellectual exchange. Um, and so I think that I maybe disagree with your reading, not because anything in the text supports mine, but just because like my background orientation is like, I'm just committed yeah. to this idea that being analytic is not at odds with being in awe. And in fact, it can be a, a way of being odd about things. And I think that that's, at times the narrator might be overly analytic, like at the expense of all or analytic in the wrong way. But I think at times her fascination with her desire to understand things is evidence of her fascination with things and her like enchantment. Um, and so I, I like that this book proposes that because I think that intellectualism is so often depicted as something sort of dry and unerotic. And I think that this book explores the way that it can have like a sensual and aesthetic yeah. appeal. No, I agree with that. Yeah, a, a passage sort of I was thinking of Contra Phil, not, not from mating, but it's in some C.S. Lewis book. I don't remember what. Um, but he's talking about learning Greek or something. It's like you read Homer and you're like completely obsessed and then you start learning Greek and you're like, this sucks. I hate this. <laughs> like learning a language is boring and hard. And uh, but you have to like um, if you actually want to have like a deeper aesthetic experience, you can't stop at like the first experience of awe, right? You have to do the the sort of like drier, or drier isn't even quite the, but like you have to do this sort of analytic yeah. grounding work so that you can go back and like have a, a deeper aesthetic. So I, I mean, I think in some ways what is interesting in mating is that like um, 
I would say in a weird way, she sort of skips the first level. Like I said, I, I'm never quite sure why she's so drawn to Danoon. And that's not because of a hostility I have toward him. It's because like she's literally pushed at him and then she just kind of decides to roll with it. Like, like that's how it feels reading it. Um, but I think she's sort of like, she, she's trying to do the middle stage so that they can come back, they can come out on like some some further deeper stage. Yeah. But when Danoon has a deeper experience, it's purely private. He won't, he can't or won't share. Right, it but with but her. but it's also Danoon doesn't do the initial work. So if you talk about that that bit about like yeah. learning Homer, it's like I had the vision. It's all settled. It's like no no no. This is just the beginning, right? Um, yeah, that's what makes it seem comic. It's like he's ridiculous at the end because he had this profound experience, and it's like okay, like now now what do you do with it? And it's like no, I just it's incommunicable. And then I, he gives like this parable uh, to her and yeah, it's an interesting, this is like, I'll, I'll try not to like fix it on this, but like, you know, a medieval visionary like Julian of Norwick or something. One of the things that's interesting about like the vision is that the vision itself is a text. Yeah. Like not just the, the written text, but like the vision, the details of the vision is like a text that she's sharing with you and she can return to it. It's not like a single inexpressible experience like those do exist also but like what she is sharing with you is like an experience that you can share with her um and mysticism is not actually like a purely private thing it's like a social thing yeah i mean i also think that like i mean there are things that you need to do that are dry and unesthetic like learning grief to read homer but i also think that just like the very act of intellectualism and in some of its like highest guises like can be aesthetically satisfying like there's a david foster wallace quote where he talks about like chasing the click um and he, t and he, and he I, I don't i think this is in an interview somewhere i don't even remember where it is where he says that like the two things that satisfy this for him are like doing analytic philosophy because of the sort of like crystalline quality of the argumentation and like writing and reading fiction. Uh, and I think that that's sort of in claims like the one in this book where she says our entertainment was arguing. I feel like they've elevated arguing to like a kind of art. And so there needn't be like, in addition to Danoon refusing to do the sort of like boring, like background labor, like they, the habit moments nonetheless achieved a kind of aesthetic analyticity. I don't know. Yeah, you see this desire to like get it right in their conversation when they're trying to analyze something, which I think is probably something all of us can like recognize from like a certain kind of good intellectual conversation where it's like two people arguing, but with the goal of like, can we come up with the right way to describe this phenomenon that satisfies us? And there are like yeah, a they lot even of invent words. Like, like one of their games the is like inventing words together for things that haven't been named yet. Yeah, I love at the end when he says. He responds to her question and says, certainly. And then she says, that word had no place in our idiolect. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's so weirded out by it. She's like, yeah. that would like, never be something we said to each other. Well, I think um, we should probably wrap it up. But, uh, yeah, I do think we have effortlessly achieved such a... <laughs> analytical precision and aesthetic uh, beauty in this conversation. Does anybody have any sort of last parting shots? Oh, I just want to leave sort of like a question for the audience, I guess, or something. Um, and this is referencing a, a conversation Becca and I had elsewhere, but also about meeting. Um, but we were talking about sort of like a lot of, 
relationships in fiction that seem sort of emotionally egalitarian have some kind of extreme inequality built in, like materially. Um, it's the topic of an essay in my book. Yeah. Buy it out <laughs> next year. Uh, so like Jane Eyre and Rochester would be an interesting example, partly because they actually do end up leveled by the, the end of the book. But I guess I'm thinking about this emphasis on play and it's like, um, is this kind of equality only possible like within the construct of these novels not actual life but um like if it's a game or if one person knows that they won like is the equality possible when it's a gift you're giving somebody else or like a game you're mutually playing but in the end of the day like it is your commune or like is something real happening in the game even though it's a game that's like my question for the the audience i guess or for you or or is the game yeah. prefigurative of, of the society yeah. one? Yeah, I mean, I think that, bit. like, the argument I make in my essay anyway is that the inequalities in these kinds of relationships and, like, fictional equal love just dramatize the inequality that's built into heterosexuality and that anyone in a heterosexual relationship, like, has to work hard to overcome. Um, but I think that the the th- the love stories that I find moving are ones in which I feel that despite the very blatant material inequality, like equality of emotional or intellectual kind is nonetheless achieved. So like in mating, he's, we neglected to say he's like maybe 20, she's 31 and he's like 48. uh, And he is like famous. So like in in his girl Friday, like, the the people who are in love one is a journalist and the other is her boss uh he's like the editor of the paper so that's the kind of thing that people on twitter are like no like they can't have like an equal relationship because he's her boss you know whatever or like emma like the he's way older than emma and pride and prejudice uh mr darcy has more money and is way older blah 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 i think they're about Mm -hmm. the same age I, maybe that's true. I think I think he's a little bit older because he's she's like a bit older, but they're 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 pretty equally matched. But yeah, I would be curious from the audience sort of recommendations on fictional depictions of of uh, of love. Uh, Tobit Tobe Jansen, the Finnish author, I think has uh, uh, has done that. But yeah, any recommendations uh, from the audience in, in in terms of equal love uh, would be good. So any. Um, Anything else, guys? This has been fantastic. It was fun talking with us. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom. I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. <laughs>